This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card this week is Kevin Elster, card number eight, shortstop, New York Mets. Okay, Kevin Elster, and this is a future star, so really excited to get to this one. But before we do that, we need to give a mea culpa and follow up from last week's episode. In the Terry Poole episode, I suggested that Terry Poole might be the final Canadian in the 1988 top set after Kirk McCaskill. But it was pointed out to me on Twitter by at UDEC1990 that there is another, at least one more Canadian player, unless there's some other secretly Canadian players. Rob Ducey is the third and perhaps final Canadian in the 1988 top set. No idea how I forgot. Rob Ducey. I think what happened was on Baseball Reference, I searched for all of the Canadian players sorted by the year that their career ended. And Rob Ducey had a surprisingly long career into the 2000s. How was I to know that somebody who played in the 1988 top set that I barely remembered played into the 2000s? And uh, so I I apologize, Rob Ducey, to his friends and family, and really uh, to all of Canada. The Rob Ducey episode, it will be a Ducey. Yeah, we should apologize to the embassy you know, for all the diplomats involved, for the whoever handles his citizenship, passport status, and everything else. I mean, we could have put him in real danger there, David, if, if Rob was thinking, oh, no, am I, am I no longer Canadian? Uh, so thank you. Thank you very much to the Upper Deck 1990 uh, Twitter account for keeping us honest. And if I, I promise some kind of maple syrup-themed bounty, uh, if there are any other Canadians discovered in the set, But now back to this week's card and Kevin Elster. And why are we talking about Kevin today? This card was on the first page, numerically, of my binder of 1988 Topps baseball cards. And because Kevin was expected to be such a big star, he had the first card after all of the record breakers. Right before Andy Hawkins, no-hit hero Andy Hawkins, you have Kevin Elster, smiling face, future stars card. And then I looked and he had a Saber bio by Joel Ripple. So thank you, Joel, for your work on this. And I thought, what's Kevin Elster's deal? No better reason to do an episode of the pod. So let's go to the front of card number eight. And here, what a handsome young man we've got here in Kevin Elster. Future stars emblazoned across his chest. You got full stands behind him. He is tan and looking good. Got an interesting combination with the uniform, David. We've got the, this is a mesh New York top with a different kind of script on it. And he's got a light blue undershirt underneath, which is is not usual, but looks pretty good. And then you just notice how tan he is, his blue eyes. It's just a, a gorgeous shot. According to Ron Darling in 108 Stitches, Ron Darling's tell-all memoir that got him sued for defamation by Lenny Dykstra, Darling claims that Elster liked to think of himself as a ladies' man, and he was. He was always talking about his exploits. <laughs> Kevin Elster, good-looking guy, California guy. This this look here is very 1980s SoCal. He could be one of Bill and or Ted's classmates at San Dimas High School. 
You could be in Point Break, hanging out with Johnny Utah. That's a surfer bro look. This is, I think, the coolest looking player we've seen in a card. Kevin Elster has this tiny little baseball guy pendant hanging from his gold chain, similar to Ruben Sierra's R that stood for R, good at baseball. Kevin Elster's pendant says, I like baseball. That's what that tells me. <laughs> yeah, I've never seen a, a I've never seen a chain with a pendant like that. Uh, it's an a, a interesting accessory kind of choice. You know, maybe this is what helped him so much with with the ladies that they knew just at first glance what they were getting. Yeah, this tiny little thing. It, that now we have oversized chains. This is you know very understated. That tells me future star of baseball. So, excellent looking card. Let's flip to the back of card number eight. We have Kevin Elster, six foot two, 180, right handed batter and thrower, drafted by the Mets in the second round of 1984. Born August 3rd, 1964, San Pedro, California, with a home in Huntington Beach, California. San Pedro, not San Pedro de Macaris. Born in San Pedro, which is in the city of Los Angeles, but before 1909 was a separate city. At the time of Kevin's birth, it was already part of the city, so I'm not entirely sure why they had to distinguish it and not just say he was born in Los Angeles. But that neighborhood is home to the port of Los Angeles. While born in San Pedro, Kevin grew up and went to high school a little bit farther south on the Pacific Coast Highway in Orange County in Huntington Beach. In 1960, Huntington Beach had a population around 11,000. That boomed to over 100,000 by 1970. Now it's one of the larger cities in the OC, close to 200,000 in population. The city's referenced in the Beach Boys, Surf and Safari, Jan and Dean's, Surf Route 101, and Surfer Joe by the Surfaris. Surf music, not necessarily my area of expertise. However, 1990s ska music is my area of expertise. Real Big Fish formed in Huntington Beach in 1992. Also, MC Bat Commander from the Aquabats lives in Huntington Beach. Kevin went to Marina High. Famous alumni include Dave Mustaine from Megadeth and Iowa and Arizona basketball coaching legend Lute Olson. While Kevin was a good player at Marina High School, he didn't get drafted or really get much scouting interest at all. He ended up at Golden West College and they were the only college that recruited him. They have a decent junior college program with a lot of minor leaguers. John Moses, also in the 1988 top set, went to Golden West, along with Chicago Bulls legend Jack Haley, RIP. Michelle Pfeiffer and Vivica A. Fox both went to Golden West College. And maybe one of the biggest baseball influencers played at Golden West, and that is Scott Boris, who was an infielder in the 1970s prior to a short minor league career for the future super agent. While at Golden West, coaches knew that Kevin had special abilities as a defensive shortstop, but they couldn't really have guessed that he would be a major leaguer by the time he was 22. He only played one season, but scouts were watching, and that takes us to the This Way to the Clubhouse on the card that Kevin signed as a second-round draft selection, with the Mets, May 21st, 1984, by Scout Dean Youngward. Young Youngward. I don't remember Youngward. how we said For consistency and podcast consistency, I don't know how we said it in the Ray Quinones episode. We'll revisit the tape. He, he was picked in the second round of the January draft 
the only player in the second round who ended up with a positive war. Jeff Blauser and Kevin's future teammate Gil Heredia were the standouts in the first round of this January draft. Dean Youngward was a minor leaguer in the 1940s. His brother Roger was also a major league scout for the Mariners, among other teams. He was the one who had to go search for Ray Quinones in Puerto Rico when Ray was unhappy with his contract. Roger and Dean, not Jan and Dean, but Roger and Dean scouted Southern California for the Mets, including finding such great players as Daryl Strawberry, Kevin Mitchell, and Lenny Dykstra. Roger went on to the Mariners and is credited with convincing ownership to select Ken Griffey Jr. over Mike Harkey in the draft, which was a good choice. Dean went on to scout for Texas, Atlanta, and Philadelphia and was credited with signing Chipper Jones and Ryan Klesko for the Braves. Elster had played so well at Golden West that he had impressed Arizona State, who had offered him a baseball scholarship. Kevin had choices, and Dean had to make him a pretty good offer. The bonus isn't listed on baseball reference, but it was reported to be in the range of $44,000. By comparison, late first-round picks in the regular June draft were getting $65,000 around this time. So a pretty good offer for a January second-round pick. Elster signs that May of 1984. He's still only 19 years old. And so he was sent to Little Falls in A-Ball. And on the back of the card, you can see that first year at Little Falls. He played 71 games in his first year, hitting 257, 13 steals. So not bad for his first year. 1985, he split between Lynchburg, which was single A, and Jackson, double A. And he hit well enough, 295 at Lynchburg and 257 at Jackson. But his range at shortstop is what really impressed coaches. He was always well-known for his glove. When he got to the majors, was kind of seen as an all-glove, no-hit shortstop. He actually showed a little bit of power at Lynchburg, seven home runs, which, considering he only played in 59 games, was pretty good for a young Kevin Elster. 1986, he ends up staying at A, plays 127 games, hits 269. His on-base percentage was actually higher than his slugging percentage shows, so he was showing very little power at this point. By late in the year, the Mets are running away with the NL East. Davey Johnson needed to try out some backups for Rafael Santana at shortstop. Johnson said, as good as Santana has played, what if I have a bases loaded situation and I'm down in a game? I would need another shortstop if I pinch hit for him. Santana's hitting only 218, so this was a real concern. When I was looking into their options that they had in 1986, at AAA, their shortstop was hitting over 290, and it was 1988 Tops all-star rookie Al Pedrique, who ended up on the Pirates, but at this point was the AAA shortstop in the Mets organization. But instead, Davey calls down to Jackson at AA and brings up young Kevin Elster. Elster had 28 errors that season, but he had good range, so the Mets weren't too concerned about that number. They really saw him as a potential shortstop of the future, and so they were willing to jump past the AAA shortstop and bring up this guy from AA. Overlooking Al Pedrique, that's a shocking decision. Elster made his debut in the majors on September 2nd as a defensive replacement, just a month after his 22nd birthday, and that leads 
Then to the fun fact on the back of the card that he collected his first major league hit on September 3rd, 1986. This hit came in a win against the Giants in his second game. That year, he went 5 for 30 in 19 appearances, so not heating it up too too much at the plate. He was a defensive replacement in four of the games in the NLCS and went 0 for 3 in game six, but came in in the ninth inning and ended up playing eight innings. Yeah, that was a 16-inning, extra-inning game. The Mets end up making the World Series. Elster comes in in game six of the World Series in the sixth inning, replacing podcast favorite Danny Heap and Kevin went 0 for 1 he did have an error his error didn't lead to a run and he was then replaced in the ninth inning by pinch hitter Howard Johnson who struck out so not a really memorable World Series experience but the Mets won game six and game seven Kevin was a world champ as a rookie there's pictures of him running onto the field to celebrate that World Series victory what a great experience for a 22 year old rookie yeah and followed it up in style by being sent back to the minors in 1987 he starts the year at triple a tidewater but brought some big league confidence back with him uh, and found his hitting stroke in triple a in his 134 games at tidewater he hit 310 hit eight home runs 33 doubles and 74 rbis earning him another short call up Five games that he played for the Mets in 1987. Went four for ten in those five games. Earning this future star splashed across his card as the shortstop of the future for the Mets. And when we look at that last minor league line, we know that he was has been called up as a young player, has a good glove. It makes sense why he might get that future star. They had a lot of confidence in him. And they took that confidence after the 1987 season and traded away Rafael Santana, basically handing Elster the starting spot. They also decided to give 1989 Topps future star, and at the time, shortstop, Greg Jeffries, more reps at third base and second base. And this put some pressure on Elster to perform. And he hit only 214 with nine home runs. His OPS plus was only 75. But in the field, he was great. After July 19th of 1988, he didn't make an error for 88 straight games, a record which has since been broken by Mike Bordick, but at the time that was a major league record for a shortstop. His 977 fielding percentage was second amongst National League second basemen, and despite that poor average and OPS plus, he was valued at 1.3 wins above replacement, really helped by that solid glove. In the NLCS in 1988, he got another chance, starting three games and going two for eight against the Dodgers. One hit was an RBI double, and he also had three walks that series, so he got on base quite a bit. The series would ultimately go to the Dodgers, but leading into 1989, he is solidly in the middle infield for the Mets. Greg Jeffries is now up playing second base. There's a good video of some of the good plays between those two players that we will have in the show notes. And Kevin led National League shortstops and putouts. He only had 15 errors, really great range. And he also made another really good grab. This one, a tiny cat. Kevin rescues a a small black kitten that had gotten onto the field. And makes the play. 
I'm really impressed here, David, that Kevin was brave enough to rescue a black cat because you know that superstition is that a black cat crossing your path is bad luck. But also that cat was perilously close to the dugout steps. He could have taken a tumble down into the dugout with it. He really, you know, as a former cat owner and Matt, I've watched your cats. That's really a, it's a smooth move that he made. He kind of just like takes one arm and just kind of scoops up underneath it. It was almost delicate. And then he's kind of holding it in a a very sweet way. So very nice of Kevin to, to catch this cat. I'm not sure that as a person who depends on his, his hands for a living, that I would scoop up a possibly scared, angry cat with sharp teeth and claws. Who knows what diseases that cat could have running around a baseball field. But a, a very good grab, Kevin showing his, uh, his, his soft hands. would have to guess that a player that had been on the 1980s Mets for several years was not too scared of catching diseases. Yeah. We'll just let that we'll let that one sit there. If you're close enough to Lenny Dykstra long enough, you <laughs> you know what you're in for. Who knows what you catch? Not worried about rabies. It's probably the least of your worries. But back to the action in 1989 at the plate, Kevin was a little better than years past. He had an OPS of only 87, hitting 231 with 10 home runs, which in 1989 shortstops is okay. His offensive war of 1.3 was 12th among shortstops, so a little better than average. But his great defense really boosted his value. Overall, a 2.3 war, which was ninth among shortstops that season. In 1990, he misses time significantly with a shoulder injury, and his average drops to 207. He also had 17 errors, which was a career high in only 92 games. So that shoulder injury really put a damper on his season. He ended up having surgery and is shut down early. The Mets weren't sure that he would be back to open the 1991 season, but after a few games, he earns his spot in the starting lineup. He hit well with an average over 270 through the month of May, but the summer he started to slow down and regressed back to his normal averages, finishing the season at 241 with six homers. In 1992, his shoulder problems returned, And he only played in six games. And he made $750,000 that year. So the Mets did not offer him a new contract after that season. He ends up signing for and being released by multiple minor league teams in 1993 and 94, including the Dodgers, Marlins, Padres, and finally the Yankees. He hit 240 in 44 A and AA games in the Yankees organization and was called up for seven games before shoulder pain put him back on the DL. In 1994, although he's in the middle of bouncing from team to team, he had a huge highlight. He was in Little Big League. He played Pat Corning alongside Leon Durham and Dennis Farina, and legitimate stars appearing as themselves. I mean, I say legitimate stars, I just said Dennis Farina. (laughs) I should say legitimate major league stars. Ken Griffey Jr., the big unit Randy Johnson, Rock Reigns, Also, Chris Berman shows up in this movie. I have not seen this movie since it was in the theater, so I do not remember if Kevin had a Hollywood star written in his performance. I plan to revisit it later this weekend, but it isn't on any streaming service that I have, so I have to like wait until it actually shows up in the TV programming, like this is 1994 or something. 
1994 ends. He's 30 years old. And yes, he's coming off the glow of starring in a movie with Dennis Farina. But he really only played in seven major league games and went 0 for 20. Is it time for him to ride off into the sunset and maybe look to star in more movies, become a Hollywood leading man? No, he just starts bouncing around more minor league teams. (laughs) He played for three organizations in 1995, starting with the Yankees. And he gets released. He said, a bellhop knocked on my door and said, Mr. Jeter, your luggage is here. I told the guy that he had the (laughs) wrong person. And being around the game, I immediately knew something was up. If you look at baseball reference, Elster was released by the Yankees on 528. A young Derek Jeter joined the Yankees on 529. Like ships passing in the night, the the one-time future star of the Mets is surpassed by the, the next future shortstop of the Yankees. And as he said, Kevin had been around long enough but to know, and he wasn't particularly offended. He said, actually, he saw Jeter, and Jeter gave him a hug because they both kind of knew what was happening. He signs with Kansas City, plays for a little bit at their AAA club in Omaha, gets released. Same with Philadelphia, starting at Scranton, gets called up, plays 26 games for the Phillies, and then is released at the end of the season. Going into the 1996 season, after all of that turmoil, we have a 31-year-old Kevin Elster signed for a single season to play for the Texas Rangers for $270,000. The Rangers around this time have Ivan Rodriguez, Juan Gonzalez, guys who were implicated in PED usage by Jose Canseco. Nothing really concrete about Elster. He looks like he's maybe filled in a little bit more. He wasn't huge on his card in 1996, he's listed at 6'2", 200. So he's put on a little bit of weight, and he's aged a little bit. But he had a season that came totally out of nowhere. He's finally fully healthy. Benji Gill gets injured in spring training, and so Elster gets the starting spot. And nobody could have predicted this line. 157 games played, 515 at-bats, 130 hits, 32 doubles, 24 home runs. 99 RBIs and a 252 batting average, all of them career highs in that one season. His career high in home runs prior to that season was 10, and he put up 24. Also led the American League in putouts, earning AL Comeback Player of the Year from the Sporting News, and the Rangers make the playoffs too. They lost to the Yankees in four games in the ALDS. But Kevin went 4-for-12 with two doubles. He added three walks. He had a pretty good series, and he earned himself a big payday. The Pirates signed him for $1.65 million for one year. Sorry, Matt. <laughs> I'm shaking my, I am shaking my head at that. Because so, I know where this is going. He had seven home runs through 39 games. He was playing pretty well. Yep. And then he has a collision with Kurt Abbott and breaks his wrist, and it ends his season in Pittsburgh. He signs back with Texas and is released after 84 games. He has a house in Vegas at this point, and he says he's going to open a bar. He said the, the city needs a place where people can play live music and just jam. He's not wrong about that. Las Vegas does not have that many kind of places. I went to Las Vegas in 1999, and I agree, I agree with Would you that. have gone to a bar called Hootie? Yes. <laughs> Kevin said, baseball is a job to me, not an obsession. I just felt like staying home, sitting by the pool, and not playing baseball. 
I was living a normal life. Yeah. Then he got a call from his old manager, Davey Johnson. And just like in 1986, Davey needed a shortstop and Kevin had nothing to do. So he showed up in L.A. and won the starting job. Through his first few games, he's hitting 286, playing pretty well. And then L.A. travels to San Francisco for the opening day at the new Pac Bell Park. And Kevin opens that park with a bang. He hits three home runs, four RBIs, and a 6-5 to five win. And this is all after having just been sitting by the pool for the last year. He ends up having an okay season. He hits 227 with 14 home runs. And after the season, he retires. He tries to come back with the Yankees in 2002. And even though coaches said he still had some of the best hands in the game, he didn't make the roster out of spring training. And so he called it a career. So closing the book on Kevin Elster, 13 major league seasons, a 228 average with 88 home runs, a career OPS plus of 83, and a career fielding percentage of 974. So how about in retirement? I couldn't find much about jobs that Kevin's had. It seems he's just retired. According to one article, his routine is that he wakes up, goes to the gym, and goes to the beach. That's that's all right. <laughs> That sounds pretty great. <laughs> but here's a guy that was the future star on this card. And like you said, was the first page that you would see in the book. Certainly a name I remember, not just from this set, but from his career in the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s. So what do we think about him? Kevin Elster was an all-field, no-hit shortstop for most of his career. Not totally uncommon in the 1980s. His name showed up on some defensive leaderboards, leading both the AL and NL in shortstop putouts. In 2006, he was listed in this 50 best Mets of all time, number 48. I'm sure that he has been surpassed by two people by now. He only played seven seasons with the Mets. He was a very good defensive while disappointing offensive player at shortstop. But Mets fans do remember him and maybe remember that promise. And he won a World Series ring before he was even a future star. He set a fielding record and had a a really good defensive career and probably made some pitchers much better by playing behind them. Late in his career, he was still remembered as that great fielding shortstop. Even when his offense got better, he was still putting up good defensive numbers in Texas Even though he didn't make the Yankees in 2002, Yankee scouts were saying that Kevin Elster still was one of the best shortstops in baseball, even if they didn't find a place for him on their team. When I was searching around for information about Elster and looking to see, was he on performance-enhancing drugs? What was the deal with that 1996 breakout season? Elster himself said he was stronger and he was smarter, which... Sure. You get a little bit of experience. You know what you're looking for 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 pitchers. It was a a more offensive environment in in 1996, but it was also the steroid era. And he was playing on a team with suspected steroid users, people that were implicated with performance-enhancing drugs. And while searching through that, I also found this song. And it's written by an artist named Cousin Wolf. And Cousin Wolf is the stage name of Matt Halverson. Matt Halverson was a college baseball player, then had a career in Major League Baseball in 
press offices for Major League Baseball teams and Minor League Baseball teams, and once worked with friend of the show, Mark Simon, at Sports Info Solutions, and shows up on Mark's Sports Info Solutions podcast. Cousin Wolf decided to write this whole album about different baseball players, and he writes these songs that are focused on often lesser-known players and key on what might be low points in their career, including one called Kevin Elster, and this is from the album Nine Innings, and the songs are available on Spotify, on YouTube. At home and exhausted And Elster's focuses on maybe his thought process right before that breakout season and that one big season with the Rangers. 1996, the height of performance-enhancing drugs. Elster's at this point just sitting at home and thinking, I can either stay here or I can go try to do this and try to run this again. And I think where Halverson comes down theorizing about the thought process not necessarily that whether Elster did or didn't take steroids, but if he did and had this 252, 24 home run, 99 RBI season, that kept him in the game. That got him a payday. And who are any of us to say that we would do anything different when faced with that situation? But also that when it comes to somebody like Juan Gonzalez, who won multiple MVPs, or Barry Bonds, or our brains immediately see the that player and think of something nefarious about using performance-enhancing drugs because it put them on such a trajectory and at such a level. But when it's somebody like Kevin Elster, you're just kind of like, well, he he had an okay season and he extended his career out for a little bit. It's kind of like the Benito Santiago conversation that we had. And for Kevin, he got that big payday, had a couple seasons where he made over a million dollars, And then he bought a house in Huntington Beach and a house in Las Vegas, and he splits time between those two places, wakes up, goes to the gym, and goes to the beach. And that's a pretty nice life. So the surfer dude with a solid career and a retirement spent at the beach. It's a great story, and thank you very much to Joel Ripple for the Sabre bio, and thank you, David, for bringing us that story, and thank you to you at home for listening if you've ever had a bellhop break you some very bad news, we'd love to hear all about it on Twitter. We're at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.